Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. We are continuing our study in the book of Genesis. Um, It's been a couple of weeks since we met. There's been a few things going on. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, um, you can, if you'd like, you can start. We're going to do a kind of a quick review of last, the last time we were together. So that's chapters 29 through 32, a very, very fast review of those. So that's where we'll pick up. But if you're wanting to just turn to chapter 33, that's where we'll be studying tonight. And we'll see. I think we're just going to do one chapter tonight. Slow it back down. So, And I, I do want to mention, though, that when I did that last teaching, I took on four chapters. And I really, after talking with Pastor Doug especially, really felt like, man, that was, there was too much that I glossed over. And so again, I'm just committing to slowing down and just let the Lord lead as long as it takes us to get through the book, but probably most definitely by the end of the year. So, Lord willing. Um, From the beginning of Genesis... What has been the main theme or, and the main character of the book? Well, that has been, uh, right from the, the beginning, the main theme has been the power, the majesty, and faithfulness of God. In contrast to the faithlessness of humanity, of mankind. And we, we just see this pattern over and over again. God's faithfulness, His promises, um, his love and encouragement, his provision, and man embraces it initially, humanity embraces it initially, and then they fail to trust him, and it turns into a big mess, and then God renews that, and then man lays hold of God again, and then falls away again. Does this sound familiar, perhaps to some of our lives, all of our lives? But the main theme has been the power, the majesty, and the glory of God. And God has been the main character. With humanity playing the the second role in the whole thing. Still a prominent role, but God has been the object of it all. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, He has been the main character. Now, as we consider our study... um, in chapters 29 through 32, um, just again, I want to slow it down a little bit, um, but we're going to review some of these tonight just a little bit. In chapter 29, we learn the, on the, the account of Jacob meeting Rachel and uh, kind of jumping back just a second as chapter 28 closes, Jacob is, he's given this vision there at Bethel. He sets up 
the, the stone pillar. He anoints it. He makes sacrifices there. Bethel meaning the house of God. He has this vision of the ladder of the angels ascending and descending. And this communication from God to him, uh, reaffirming or confirming the covenant that was given to Abraham, his grandfather, to Isaac, his father, and now to himself. He calls that place Bethel, the house of God. He then departs to find his mother's relatives as he was commanded to do by his father and his mother. And this is where chapter 29 begins when he, with his arrival near Haran, near the home of Laban. And Laban turns into, as we can see, quite a character. It's there nearby at a well that he meets his future wife, Rachel, and the challenge of Uncle Laban. Now, it's interesting to note that just right out of the gate, Jacob's eyes are so full of Rachel's beauty that he completely forgets to consult the Lord. It's really a contrast when you see the servant of Isaac going to, to, to the house of Laban, actually his father, and seeking a, a, a wife for Isaac in, in the person of Rebekah, and, and the prayers and the asking of God's direction. In this, Jacob does none of that. He offers no prayers for guidance and wisdom, God's favor upon him. He's just like, that is one beautiful lady. How do I get to know her better and quick? And it rolls from there. And he is completely blinded to what is about to happen to him. This failure will lead him to be deceived by his uncle. As history unfolds, Jacob, the deceiver, ironically becomes the deceived. He, ha he begins to reap what he has sown throughout his life. And that's the warning to you and I, that we ought to beware that our eyes and our hearts are not led astray by our own foolishness. That in matters of importance, in fact, in anything relating to our life, we ought to be seeking the wisdom and the counsel and the intimate relationship of God that we would know, we would know where he is leading us. As chapter 29 closes, we see the sad story of Jacob re repeating the sins of his parents as he demonstrates this favoritism between his two wives, and, and this just gets more and more complicated. Again, um, if you're you know, watching Jerry Springer, I'm, I'm not saying you should. In fact, I should say you would, shouldn't. <laughs> um, but it's just it's this whole soap opera mess going on as he begins to to really carry out the sins of his parents. And like his parents, he too suffers the consequences of really pitting his wives one against another as he loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. Caving into their demands when they go off the rails. And now he has not just two wives, but four. And it, the, the mess just gets worse. He suffers the same frustrations of his grandfather, Abraham. He now finds himself with multiple wives and strife in his home. Again, this only highlights his failure to seek the Lord's counsel. 
before he even agreed to work for seven years for Rachel's hand, and much less gaining two in the bargain. Well, not his bargain, but the bargain. Again, this, this ought to be our first response when it comes to life decisions, especially in marriage. We ought to be seeking the Lord. Now, also in that mix, despite all the brokenness, you see this gentleness and this kindness of the Lord that he demonstrates towards Leah, the unloved wife, and he blesses her with children. And this is, the, this is true of God. He has an eye for the brokenhearted. That's Psalms 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And and that's an encouragement for us if we're in that place of life where it just seems like we're getting run over. It's not of our own doing, our own making. It's just life or other people's sin impacting us. But God is near to the brokenhearted. Chapter 30 begins with the record of Jacob's sons. Uh, that, whole, that whole mix together and their various names and the, the, the relationships, the ensuing strife continues. Um, through four women, he then has 12 sons and one daughter. Uh, at this point, it's 11 sons and one daughter. And sadly, this family will be characterized by bitterness and division. And that even continues all the way into chapter 37. If we could learn one thing from them, it would be found actually in their poor example, their example of what not to do in a family, how not to conduct yourself, how to not to demonstrate to your children a poor and bad example of living. But again, despite their bad attitudes and choices, the Lord remained faithful to his promise to Jacob. Despite Jacob taking both these women, taking matters into their own hands, God demonstrates his kindness. As I mentioned the last time we were together, Leah bore seven natural children, one of them her daughter Dinah. And of all the sons of Jacob, later be known as Israel, the most notable are descendants of Leah. So again, this was God's kindness, his working out of his plan. And we're going to see the, more of that relationship with Leah and Jacob later on in, this, in the book of Genesis. It's through Judah that all the kings of Israel would be blessed um, Israel being Jacob, and through Levi, the worship of God would be promoted. But also, again, this whole thing that the grace towards Rachel was evident that God would use Joseph to preserve the nation, to preserve the people, and we'll see that farther in Genesis as well. As chapter 30 closes, we see the blessings of God in Jacob despite his, his shenanigans, and despite Laban's manipulations, this is one thing that also that we can pick up from this. Despite what man plans, God still directs the steps, doesn't he? No matter what we think we have over God, there is nothing to stop him. 
He is above all things, isn't he? No one can stand against him. And that is an encouragement to us as we look around the world today, despite all the manipulations that are happening around the world, despite the chaos and even what we're seeing in the news today, God has not forgotten us. And he is working these things in his perfect plan. Of that we can be assured. As chapter 31 opens with Jacob's concern regarding Laban and his sons, he he says, they are no longer friendly towards me, towards us. He relates this to Leah and to Rachel. They are not happy. They think Jacob has stolen, that really not only Laban, but all his son, also his sons, has stolen their inheritance. But not, they're not realizing that it was really God who was giving it to Jacob. As much as Laban thought he had, it, had a quick, fast deal on Jacob, God was saying, no, no. I know, I know Jacob is no peach, but let me tell you, he is still the bearer of the covenant promise. On Jacob's part, he needs to return. And this is, the, this is what he's discovering. He needs to now return to Canaan, return to God's plan and promise so that he, he now makes this plan to return to Canaan at the Lord's leading. And that's there in chapter 31, verses 3, and also in 13. But Jacob doesn't fully trust the Lord. I mean, he has this word from the Lord, but he doesn't fully trust him enough to go to Laban and say, hey, God says it's time for me to go. Gotta go, can't stay. Love you, thank you for all, the, um, for all my wives and heartaches and challenges. I've really grown, you know. Um, none of that. He sneaks off in the middle of the night. He once again makes a decision based on what? Fear. Has that ever been a good decision-making process for any of us? Has fear ever been like, wow, when I make a decision out of fear, it turns out so good. It never has worked out for me. No, God desires us to put our trust in him, to make decisions based upon truth, based upon facts that are founded in his character and nature. How often do you and I make these kind of decisions? If we would only spend time with the Lord, meditating upon his word and seeking him in prayer persistently, (coughs) we would discover the peace and wisdom found in him. This is what Jacob would have discovered as well. A peace, a confidence. Chapter 31 also provides (coughs) a description of some of Jacob's trials or or discipline from the Lord. As he took advantage of Esau, so he too was now taken advantage of. It's mentioned there that Laban changed his wages (coughs) some ten times as, as part of that. Again, as he lied and deceived, he was deceived and lied too. And as we mentioned last time, he's discovering that his sin 
looks much worse on someone else. Has that ever been our case? When we look at someone's life, whoa, they are messed up. They're, they're, they're really sinning against me. And then we discover that what they're doing to us is what we've done to others. Our sin often looks worse on someone else. And God is opening his eyes. The question is, will it take hardship and trials to open our eyes? I hope not. I mean, I know sometimes that has definitely been the case with me, but I hope that as we grow, as we've been hearing on Sundays through the study in Corinthians, even last Sunday um, in Timothy, that as we grow, that our lives more consistently reflect an obedience to God. So Jacob flees Laban. Laban begins pursuing him. He's planning to take and recover his idols and, and perhaps more. I mean, he alludes to that. He basically tells him, listen, all these children of yours are really mine and everything that you have belongs to me. But God intervened. God told him the night before, do not say one bad word against him. Don't, do not malign his name. Say your peace and move on. And what follows really then in, in the remainder of that chapter is a sad picture of, of a man who knows the heart of the Lord but is too prideful to acknowledge it. Too prideful to say, listen, I've done you bad seven ways from Sunday. And it's partially my fault, the mess that we're in. No, he doesn't do that. He lays into Jacob, but then he says, hey, but, you know, hey, I'm, I'm trusting the Lord. God said, don't touch you. Don't say anything wrong about you. I, I'm doing that. He plays as if he is the righteous one. He really is the picture of what it says in Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Now, Jacob, on his part, he is no less foolish than Laban. Again, he fails to consult the Lord. He makes this vow. He says, listen, whatever you search through everything that I have and whoever has something that belongs to you, specifically these idols or this idol, that person, their life will be required of him not knowing that it is his favorite wife, Rachel, that has them. And even in this, God spares him. This is grace to the extreme. Have you and I experienced grace to the extreme? I certainly have. The overwhelming kindness of God In the closing verses of chapter 31, we learn of the covenant made between Jacob and Laban. They, they have at Mizpah this, this agreement that God stands as a witness between the two of us. In it, we see Laban now as kind of this beaten man. He's, his lying and cheating were really, in essence, publicly revealed. 
Laban tries to present himself as the injured party, as the peacemaker, and he really this Mizpah, this covenant agreement uh, between the two of them really turns into more of a warning than a reconciling. And again, I know some of us perhaps have had those little medallions that are split into the Mizpah coins, you know. But if you read this, you got to understand, this was not a happy moment. This wasn't like, oh, when we're apart, we're just going to totally love each other. No, Laban's covenant was, listen, God has got his eye on you. And if you step out of line, if you mistreat my daughters, he's going to get you. This was no friendly encounter. But it is true. I mean, he is speaking truth. But he should have also been listening to his own words because God's eye was on him as well. God's word tells us that his eye is upon the righteous and the unrighteous. And for the righteous, he intervenes. Laban is the picture of the worldly spiritual people. Have you heard that before? I'm a very spiritual person. People claiming to possess godliness, but as the scriptures say, completely denying its power. As Jacob and Laban depart, Jacob is free from his lies. He's, he's released into this new frame of mind, perhaps. Uh, worldly influences now are behind him. No longer will he live in fear of Laban. However, there is the little matter of Esau. <laughs> he still has this tremendous fear of his brother. The fear that first drove him from the land of promise, from Canaan. So chapter 32 opens with God sending his angels to encourage Jacob. He's like, listen, I know you got past this hurdle. I've watched over you. I'm, I'm going to see you through the first one. And what is Jacob's response? Well, I'd like to tell you, it was like, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm never going to doubt you again. That is not how it plays out, right? Jacob sends messengers to Esau, and it is here that we see the beginning of, yes, some humility and this kind of contriteness of heart. But there is also a lack of trust in the Lord. He is already trying to make a way to appease his brother, not realizing that God has already taken care of that. I, I can certainly say for myself that I often want to help God solve a problem, not realizing he's already working the problem. In fact, it's not a problem for him. It's only a problem for me because I'm not trusting. Still, as he cries out to the Lord, he wants so badly to control the t situation, and he thinks um, his wealth and everything else is going to fix the situation. He offers what he has in hopes of appeasing Esau, again, not realizing that God has made another way. So again... As he sends this great gift across the river, he remains back. God visits him again. He comes to him in the night, and Jacob wrestles with him. Actually, the way it's written is, the Lord wrestles with Jacob. 
Jacob, this is a beautiful story. Jacob did not seek out the man, the angel of the Lord. No, the man, the pre-incarnate Christ, sought out Jacob, and he wrestles with him. In fact, in verse 30 of that chapter, Jacob's declarations confirm it. Isn't it an encouragement to know that God is always seeking after the lost? He is always seeking the wayward child. That's the beauty of the, of the story of the prodigal son, is that the father was looking and waiting, looking into the distance, waiting for his son, and it was a great joy to welcome him home. God is looking for his lost children always. And he is making a way. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always. See, what's happening here is Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, is subduing the prideful heart of his child, the fearful heart of his child, and then verse 25 in that chapter when it says, he saw that he had not prevailed against him, it says, it, it, we really could read that as it is appeared because this was not an even wrestling match. You know, we mentioned that last time. This was not like one, one guy given a good fight. No, God was being really patient and gentle. He was playing along. And it's evidenced by the fact that as the dawn is breaking, he touches him. <laughs> Instantly, he's lame. His hip is thrown out of the socket. This was patiently restrained power. Aren't you glad that God is patient with us? That he is patiently restraining his judgment not desiring that any would perish. Nonetheless, Jacob clings to him with all that he has and pleads for a blessing. And the Lord requires one more thing of him. He asks Jacob, what is your name? And he doesn't ask like, hey, John, what's your name? He's saying, no, Jacob, what is the meaning of your name? What are you characterized by? And Jacob, with some guilt and shame, says, Jacob, the trickster, the deceiver, that is who I am. And in that confession, the Lord says to him, no longer will you be called Jacob, but you will be Israel. Jacob admits to the truth of his name, his natural and worldly identity. It is then that God gives him a new identity. Israel, the God who rules over me. And he receives in his body now a constant reminder that it is the Lord who rules over him. Is that true for you and I? Are, are we people that say the Lord rules over us? With a new name and identity, Jacob sets out to face his greatest fear, the brother 
he is wronged, his brother Esau. This is where we pick up the story now in chapter 33. If you'll read along with me. Verse 1, Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. It, it, it is a sad thing that you see, even in this, his preferential treatment. Puts the maids in front, then Leah, then Rachel. He is choosing his favorites. And again, this is going to come into play as we get a little bit farther into Genesis. Joseph, this favored son, is going to play a major role in the book of Genesis. His brothers are going to hate him for what has been done. This isn't lost on these kids, by the way. Oh, yeah, Dad. Thank you. Put your favorite in the back, the most protected place, and offer us as cannon fodder. Now, the one thing that he has going for him is that Jacob at least has the honor and the integrity to go ahead of them all. He at least says, listen, if there's going to be anyone to die, it's me first. Completely forgetting the promises, the repeated promises when he left his brother while he was with his uncle, as he fled from his uncle, as he wrestled with the Lord, the repeated promises that you are the covenant bearer, the heir to the promise, that from you a great people and nation will come. He forgets all of that. But he does take a little bit of a position of humility, which is, which is always a great place. And, and again, we heard this on Sunday in the message. In our conflicts, in our failings, in our relationship, the best position to be is one of humility. As was mentioned on Sunday, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. He also quoted Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is also at the core of Jesus' sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 5, blessed are the gentle or the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. This is one thing that he is getting right. However, He has authority, God-given authority over his brother, and he is not demonstrating that. And I don't mean that God-given authority in a bad way. He was given the promise. He was the inheritor. He was promised that he would rule over his brother, but he cannot remember this. He can't grasp this. But at least for the first time in his life, he's showing some humility. This is what the Lord desires, to consider others better than ourselves, to, to maintain a humble attitude 
and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, who is over us. When we disagree, if we assume the best of the other person, avoid assigning evil motives before we hear their heart, we are more likely to discover the truth and be reconciled. But will we take the time? Will we take that attitude of humility that says, listen, maybe I totally misunderstood. Maybe I didn't hear. Maybe I missed something. Maybe they misspoke. But no, oftentimes, and I'm certainly uh, guilty of this, we assume the worst, don't we? And we begin to assign motives. They hate me. They don't like me. They just want to rule over me. But to assume the worst of someone else is a sure path to pride. Verse 4, Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. And now this has got to be a huge shocker, right? He is terrified. He is bowing down. He is showing all the cultural deference that he possibly can. And Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. He lifted his eyes, speaking of Esau, and he saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, Jacob, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. Jacob is receiving this long-awaited bit of restoration. The restoration that the Lord had been preparing beforehand a blessing that the Lord has prepared beforehand. How many blessings has the Lord prepared for you and I beforehand? He says we can't even imagine it. We can't even grasp it. The joy and love of family could have been his had he, Rebecca, had he and Rebecca trusted the Lord rather than deceived Esau and Isaac. That is the hard, sorrowful truth. But this is also the kindness of God toward Esau. The Lord has softened Esau's heart toward his brother. And this is the kind of the work the Father desires to do in you and me through his Spirit to soften our hearts even when we are wronged. Now, now don't get me wrong. Esau was no shining example of righteousness either. He was more than willing to accept the blessing that was not his. He was willing to go along with his dad's plan, Isaac's plan, like, I know God said this, but I'm going to give it to you, son, so go make me a nice meal and come back. I'll give you everything. And God said, no, 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 not so fast. <laughs> but this kind of joy 
could have been Jacob's and Esau's long before this day. What keeps us from that joy? What is it that God is look, asking us right now to seek reconciliation and restoration, to, in humility, mend the fence, bury the hatchet, that we would know the joy, the joy of forgiveness? Verse 8, and he said, what do you mean, speaking of Esau, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And this is referring to this whole host of people and animals that Jacob had sent out after the messengers, basically an offering and an appeasement offering. And Jacob says, and he said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. He's still in this very humble, deferential mode, even though it's not true. He's not the servant of Esau. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. And Jacob says, no, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him and he took it. Now there's two things going on here. One, there's a little bit of Jacob hinting at the kindness of God. But there isn't this outright, listen, I was a jackal. <laughs> I was the master manipulator, and I tried to rob you. I tried to cheat you. I know we both know what God said right at our birth, and we should have just followed that, but I never should have done what I did. Furthermore, there's no mention of all the consequences, the reaping and sowing that he experienced under Laban. There's no mention that God said, listen, you need to go. You need to return. This, this is God's direction. There is no mention that God has abundantly blessed me far and above. There's just this kind of subtle story. But there's also this other half between the two brothers that's going on, which is quite beautiful. Esau is no longer trying to secure a name for himself. The words of his father Isaac have come true. He's, he's really broken off the yoke of his brother. He has learned contentment with what God has given him. The, in fact, it says the Lord has blessed me with more than enough. And this is the same thing that Jacob is saying. is like the Lord has blessed me with more than enough. Have you and I learned contentment? I, sometimes I think, oh, you know, I, I think I got it. <laughs> And then some new piece of fishing gear, right? Some new hobby, and I'm off and running, and contentment has escaped me once again. Are we resting in the peace that the Father promises he will give us if we will but seek him? 
Do we believe that he's given us all that we need for life and godliness? Something else that's going on here, and I think it's lost in this whole exchange because of the cultural significance of it. Jacob is giving this gift to his brother. And in essence, what he is saying by this gift, he says, as much as I have wronged you, I'm seeking to make it right. There's this undercurrent story that we don't often see. He's saying, please, please take this gift. I have, I have messed up. And the gift is proof of it. Maybe the words are not coming out, but the gift is saying that. He is asking for forgiveness. And Esau's acceptance of the gift is the extending of forgiveness. Now, this is critically important. It's a critically important aspect of reconciliation. It's to ask, give, and receive forgiveness. Something our world desperately needs. How many times have you heard say, people say, I'm so sorry? And in contrast, how many times do you hear people say, will you please forgive me? Because forgiveness has a whole host of meanings. As, as one pastor teacher said, sorry is for a social infraction. I bumped you. I stepped on your toes. Forgiveness is for sinful actions. Sorry is for social infractions. Forgiveness is for, is for sinful actions. It's important. Forgiveness is critically important. Forgiveness is the command of the Lord in Mark eleven twenty five. 25. You, whenever you stand praying, Forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. You see, forgiveness offers a blessing to the wronged and to the wrongdoer. To the wrong, the request of forgiveness offers the opportunity for freedom from bitterness and anger. How much of that do we see in our world? To the wrongdoer, it offers the opportunity for freedom from guilt and shame. This is a two-part exchange. We both gain freedom from it. The freedom we desperately need. Furthermore, when forgiveness is fully extended and received, it bears with it a threefold promise. This comes from a little pamphlet by Jay Adams, long dead um, kind of father of biblical counsel. And he says, there, it's a threefold promise. Number one, I will not think or dwell on that sin any longer. Number two, I will no longer discuss it with others. And number three, I will not hold it against you in the future. It's a threefold promise. This is what is happening in this exchange of gifts, the giving of the gift and the receiving of the gift. They're saying, please forgive, and yes, I forgive. But also, let me, let me ask you this question, and maybe dispel a myth. Does forgiving mean I must forget? Let me ask it a different way. 
if I forgive, does that mean I will forget every sin? Another way, can God forget sin? See, for a long time I thought, absolutely. I read all these passages. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Well, that one doesn't mention forgetting. Jeremiah 31.34, the last part of that verse, for I will forgive their iniquities and their sin I will remember no more. That one really seems to be much closer. Hebrews 8.12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's closer. Also, Isaiah 43.25, Micah 7.9. In each and every one of these verses, however, the Hebrew word zakar carries with it the meaning to recall. Both in the positive and the negative, God chooses to recall or to not recall. That's to drag it up, bring it forward, to not dwell on it to no longer discuss it, and to not hold it against us. God can't forget anything. He knows everything. But he chooses to not recall our sin when we stand in the presence with him, with the Savior, and the Savior, this one is mine. And God says, great, we don't have to talk about their sin. I know all about it, but we don't have to talk about it. We're not going to bring it up. Moving on, I have seen the blood of Christ applied to this one's life. Aren't we grateful that we are covered, cleansed, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ that God would say, I'm holding that sin and I'm casting it off that I would not hold it against you any longer. And this is what he asks of you and I. Listen, we are made in his image, aren't we? This is what he says in the opening chapters of Genesis. Let us make man in our image. Not in this, yes, partially physical image, being, you know, Christ, having a physical body, but also in character and nature. He's given us a memory, and we don't always have the ability to forget. Listen, I'm really gracious. I have a wife. Sometimes we'll get in an argument, and she's like, listen, I'm really frustrated. And I'm like, can you name one time that you've actually done it? And she's like, I can't remember. Like, I'm a blessed man. But this is the heart that God would have for us, for each other. That when we offer forgiveness, when we extend it, that it's that threefold promise. Verse 12, then Esau said, let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he, Jacob, said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of my cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, Please let me leave with you some of my people who are with me. But he said, Jacob, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. So, again, wouldn't it be great if we could just see Jacob, like, lay a hold of the promise of God? But 
even in this, even after this beautiful exchange and this forgiveness and this reconciliation, Jacob can't bring himself to be honest with his brother. (laughs) He offers all these excuses why he's going to delay. And then he agrees to follow Esau south. However, after Esau leaves, Jacob heads northwest. What we see really is the struggle that every one of us experiences, even including the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Romans 7, 19 through 20. For good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. He's, he's just saying what is obvious. There are two people inside us constantly fighting to live. The dead guy, the work of the flesh, the sinful life, and the man of life and righteousness. And it was as it was asked, how do you know which one will survive? Well, whichever one you feed the most. And that's why Jesus said that we ought to take up our cross how often? Daily, daily, we got to kill the dead guy. Give him no food, no water, no relief. And feed the spiritual man. Jacob has seen the Lord. He has looked upon the face of God. He said it. I've looked upon the face of God and I've lived. He wrestled with him. He received this painful reminder in his body. But there's still this old man clinging to him. And I think we all can express and say an amen to that. At times, the old person is still clinging to a piece of us. Often because we are unwilling to surrender it. Verse 17, Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and he built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, he, he named the place Succoth. Now, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padamaram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, Again, God's faithfulness. Mankind embraces God. Mankind fails God. God's faithfulness all over again. And and he's on the downward slide one more time. He's in this final bit of disobedience on Jacob's part. Mentioned back there in chapter 31 and verse 13 and, and 3. God tells Jacob to return to the land of his relatives, the land of his birth. Where was that? Jacob was born in Bir Lahai Roy. Now, while where he's going is part of the land of Canaan, but his relatives weren't there. (laughs) Worse than that, in the covenant the Lord made with Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, how were they supposed to live in the land? As sojourners, in tents, 
What is Jacob doing? He's settling in. He builds a house. He moves a little farther north there toward Shechem. But he's settling in for the long haul. This is part of him that still wants to control his own life. To have a sense of permanency and security apart from what the Lord has already entrusted and given to him. Do I have this same heart? Do we have this same heart? God, I don't know if I can trust you that much. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, but I don't know if I can trust you with that. Doesn't it sound crazy when you'd make it that plain? He's given us everything, and we're saying, I don't know if I can trust you with that. We have forgotten, I think, too often what it says in Romans 8, 1, if God is for us, who can be against us? Again, this is a lifelong battle one that we will face, one which requires consistent, passionate, and daily fellowship with the Savior. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what will be added to you? All of these things, all the things that are concerning us in life, mentioned there in Matthew chapter 6. Seek first him. If we do this, we will experience a life characterized by faith and trust. Fear won't rule our hearts. And compromise will not characterize our lives. We have a faithful and trustworthy father, don't we? One who has revealed himself to us, who appeared in human form, for 33 years, offered himself visibly as a sacrifice and then offers us, as he did Jacob, a promised land, an eternal home. But for a season, he asked us to dwell here as aliens, as those who don't have a home, here, but have a home there, one that cannot be taken, disrupted, or destroyed. Where Jesus said, no moth can eat the treasure, no robber can steal it. Our purpose is not to make a safe, carefree, and self-reliant life. Amen? No, we are called to a daily surrender to his will, finding our provision, our peace, and our protection in him, we must ask the question, are we living according to his purposes or ours? Partial obedience is disobedience. And there is a price to be paid. And when we resume next week in chapter 34, we'll see the far-reaching consequences of Jacob's choices, his compromise, his partial obedience and the effect that it has not just on him, not on just on his family, but on the nations surrounding him.
may we have a heart of obedience towards the Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together. Thank you.